Welcome to the Team EF Coaching Performance Podcast, where we take information from the highest level of sport and make it accessible for all cyclists. I'm your host, Zach Morris, and in this episode, I sit down with Coach Matt Schaukras to discuss the evolution of the sport of cycling, how riders are changing the way they're training, and how you as an athlete can take some of the things that are happening at the top level of sport and apply it to what you have going on, no matter where you are in your cycling journey. Matt has had an amazing career as a coach, winning multiple medals at the Olympic Games with the Canadian national team, and a five-year career working with the New Zealand national team. We are so happy to have Matt Schalkras as part of Team EF Coaching's elite team of coaches, and this episode is packed with information that you can take and apply to your cycling game. So jump into it and enjoy the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, everybody, please welcome Matt Schalkras to the show. Matt, welcome. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, Zach. Great to be on your show, mate. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our show. You're part of the team. You're you're our, <laughs> our newest coach at Team EF Coaching. We're really happy to have you on board. You're you're down in, in New Zealand, right? Yep, down in New Zealand and super stoked to be working with EF Coaching. And, you know, it's a great opportunity for me and super excited moving forward. That is awesome. Is it offensive to call people from New Zealand a Kiwi? No, that's what we prefer. Oh, really? So you guys actually like yeah, it? Yeah, it's more offensive if you call us Australian. Uh, well, I could see how, how that would be offensive. Yeah. 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 So so you, you were working over in Canada not too long ago, right, on the track? Yep. Yeah, I did the last uh, two and a half years in Canada, so from 2019 – I picked up a contract through to Tokyo Olympics, and then obviously with the COVID delay, it led to another year and a bit of working with them. So, yeah, ended up with the women's team through to the Tokyo Olympics, which was a pretty exciting journey and a great challenge that I enjoyed. What 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 was that like? What was what was it like prepping the uh, the ladies to go to the Olympics? It was amazing. It was it was challenging at the start. They were in a, a really funky space with just their culture and um, some of the issues going on in the program. So going into that and having to try and turn it around and change, I guess, the attitude and the philosophy to training was was a challenge, but it was so rewarding. I mean, the girls were amazing people and great athletes, and and the Canadian staff, they're so similar to Kiwis that you just fit it in pretty easily, and, and we had an amazing time. Um, it's, it's funny that you mentioned culture, so I can comment on this because I'm Canadian, but I always say that Canada doesn't really have its own unique culture like anywhere because we're we're really such a diverse country, right? Like that's one of the best things about Canada is we have people from all over the world in masses, but it's kind of like absorbed the traditional Canadian culture and we don't really have like a Canadian way of doing almost anything outside of playing hockey. And so I'm not surprised (laughs) to hear that um, we had had a a little bit of a, a weird culture going on in our Canadian track program, but Glad you were able to get in there and sort them out. We got we got a bunch of medals at the last Olympics. That was amazing. So you were you were doing something right over there. Yeah, we we had a great games and and when you reflect, you know, the whole team did so well with the sprint girls getting gold and bronze, and even the men's team pursuit. I don't think they had been to the Olympics since maybe the thirties, and for them to qualify and finish fifth was was awesome. So, um, and then obviously my team was fourth. So we we did really well, and we all set personal records and. It's just the competition's just gone to another level. So it was a phenomenal experience to see how much the bar had raised in a four-year cycle, probably the biggest jump in Olympics so far on the track. Yeah, it was, inc- it was incredible. The rate of improvement over there was, was shocking. And I, yeah. is, is that a fact? Like that's the biggest jump we've seen in a long time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That was huge. Like normally you would see – the world record might progress by one to one and a half percent for you know two seconds from worlds the previous year and we had on the women's side it jumped by six seconds um and there was four five four teams that all went under the previous world record at the olympics which generally on the women's side we might only see one or two be able to do that and we had five do that and on the men you had four teams going under 50 and it was just super huge changes um on that side which was yeah unreal and even behind the scenes was amazing it was so tense and there were so many arguments and finger pointing over equipment and cheating and it was just this whole vacuum that really just amplified the olympics that 
previous coaches I'd spoken to at previous games just had not experienced that level of of uh, intensity and arguing around equipment and seen times just record times just shatter every time someone stepped on the track. So, so you mean arguments beyond like sock height length and these sorts yeah, of things man, that was... are like very surface level that everybody knows about? Like, what what were the biggest differentiators? Do you think like what 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 made the game so much more competitive this year? Was it equipment? Was it training? Was it what was it? Yeah, I think. Uh... On the men's side, it was the equipment shifts. Like the men generally have started to figure out the game in terms of they've got a greater depth of talent. They're riding bigger gears, and, and the training's been pretty much dialed in. But it was it was the shift of the equipment. You know, the double layered skin suits, the bars, putting tape on the leading edge of your bike to kind of cut some wind flow down, and things that were really pushing the boundary there. And then on the female side, I think the equipment contributed a lot, but also with into the third cycle of, you know, four-person team pursuit, 4K. So people are starting to figure out what the training needs to look like for the girls, and we're getting a greater depth of females that are that are able to contribute to those times. So it's kind of, I'd say, boys was equipment shift, and girls was training and understanding that that discipline better for them. You you blew past it there, and, and I'll, I'll share the details with everybody. The double-layered skin suit. So for for anybody that doesn't know about it, what what pro cyclists are doing now is they're wearing a base layer or something like that with some um, different variations in height to it, like dimpling or a lot of them are like straight rubber lines. And then they wear a smooth piece of fabric over top of it. And I think this study was originally done by um, Adidas. It was funded by Adidas uh, way back in early 2010s. Is that, is that true, Matt? Do you know? Uh, I wouldn't know that off the top of my head, but I had heard uh, Adidas had some some something looking into it for that for sure. And I think a lot of the speed skating, indoor speed skating, have done a lot of research around it um, well, as well. well. I think the the breakthrough in in the cycling space came from one of the directors of the performance director at Ineos. He oh gosh, his name's not coming to me right now. Um, but he sent me the, the whole study on it and it was done in Denmark. The research was done in Denmark. They originally developed it for like the last split seconds of running on the track where the runners would reach over 40 kilometers an hour. And so that's where the whole, the whole kind of concept came from. And then, um, this guy at, at Ineos, uh, he was, he was part of that board monitoring that study and so he took it and applied it to to cycling and now everybody's pretty much doing it um but uh yeah that's the that's the latest on the on the arrow trap hidden base layers so new base layers was it what else new equipment what else what else was making these big differences yeah i just think also they just changed the way we rode like um you know there was a huge emphasis on riding bigger gears now and starting a lot quicker so especially in the team pursuit side of things it's like you're, you're training almost like a sprinter and rather than being a full endurance based athlete you start doing high intensity or intermittent efforts more regularly in your training and, and you want to develop your torque profile and your, your front end power and a lot of their guys might still do some 200k rides but they're less frequent than what they were say in rio or in london or in beijing and it's more about that shorter sharper intensity uh, and really attacking the race and they really suited Denmark's style um, unfortunately they didn't get the win but if you watch their transition over the previous cycle they were just going out the first 2k first 3k dying but really being super aggressive and trying to overspeed the ride as much as possible and then let the gear run out and, and kind of hold at the back end um, and then there's some good shifts and challenging the traditional way of thinking in terms of the lap strategies you know, how many laps a person does on a pool, how many times do they see the front of the team pursuit. Um, and there's some shifts around that as well, which just changed, I guess, the efficiency of their team and a lot more as well, which was quite exciting to see. So, so from a physiological standpoint, they were bigger gear in the beginning, right? So all muscular strength, just muscle in the gear. And then you said they're spinning it out at the end. Yeah, so what they're trying to do is just get the gear. They're spending the first kind of like four or five laps just getting as much overspeed as they can on the gear. So getting the cadence as high as possible and then 
you're going to get a decline to an extent and they're just trying to minimize that decline as much as possible so almost overspeed it so you feel like the gear's easy and then when it comes back to bite you you've still got a little bit of cadence in the legs and hopefully there's only a few more laps uh, mm. left in the in the race and that's where the strategy of who does the big turns at what point and Italy really nailed it with Ghana they knew hey man this dude's going to do four laps at the end because he's the only one that can re-accelerate the gear and do 700 watts on the front for a minute um, and that's exactly what he did pretty much and destroyed everyone <laughs> that's crazy he did 700 watts for a minute at the end wow that, that would be my guess I mean I don't know the full data but looking at the size of them and the speed they're going, it's like it's got to be up around there knowing some of the guys that I knew in the Kiwi team are around 620, 630 for their pulls on the front and they're slightly smaller guys. So you like, he has to be around that, that number somewhere. It's Gosh. unreal. He's got big levers. So hold on. Yeah. People, people might already be overwhelmed by what we're talking about on this podcast here. A yeah, lot yeah, of information yeah. in a short period of time. So Matt, why don't you give us a little bit of a background? You obviously – this is a pretty high-level conversation. You obviously had to go to school and figure some things out to be able to to, to talk like this. So, how what what's your story? Like, where where did you where did you come from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did a lot of st- like I used to race bikes myself, but was never gifted enough to probably make a career of it. So, made a decision pretty early on that I wanted to, you know, follow my passion in sport. Knew that coaching or sports science was probably my avenue. So. I went to university and did a, an undergrad degree and then followed it up with a master's in exercise physiology um, where I looked at the effect of blood brain flow on your breathing and your thermoregulation and exercise. So we had to kind of delve into some pretty cool physiology there and that led me into the coaching realm where I was able to pick up some athletes and look at things a little differently and apply probably a more um, precise scientific approach and uh, Went from there and, and managed to get picked up into the New Zealand national team as a coach there for, for five years. Um, and then when that finished up, obviously jumped across to Canada and that's got me where it has today. So it's been, yeah, 10 years coaching. And prior to that, it was probably six, seven years of study. So it's been a bit of a journey for me for sure. It's it, it's really interesting. You know, in the, in, in the professional sports side of things, we have like both sides of it. We have the scholars and then we have the – uh, people who went through the school of hard knocks and, and raced their bike for 20 years at the highest level and um, both kind of come together and, and just continue to make things better. So when you came out of school, how do you feel like all that all that hard work you put in in school helped you make a difference in the sport? Like, what were you doing? How did you apply it? Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting journey. Like, you know, it was more because I'd gone to school and probably didn't have some of the hard knock lessons, I just was more open to challenge the thinking. And I wasn't kind of set in a way of this is how we've got to train, this is how we've got to do it. I just looked at the problem differently and thought, well, if this is the demand for the sport, how can we apply a scientific principle to maximize that or, or overshoot the demand so we become more efficient and effective in, in the role? Um, so it, it took a lot of challenging conversations with the athletes, a lot of failures on my behalf trying stuff that just didn't work and um, also acknowledging the history of the sport and the past generations of people who have come before me and knowing, hey, they've got some fantastic ideas that have worked. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to maybe ask some critical questions and apply a, a critical thinking model to the to the to to what we're trying to achieve was, was how I went about it. Have you ran into anything since you've been working on the on the practical side of it that just doesn't make any sense scientifically? Yeah, there's always stuff like that. Like, you know, how can a guy produce all this power and win multiple multiple road races and then they come to the track and they can't do anything about it? It just doesn't translate. Or how can someone that doesn't train that well at all and doesn't tolerate training load go and win world titles? And I've seen both. And I just – there's no explanation for it apart from it just is what it is. <laughs> just rock, rock up on race day with a whole different mentality. Um, yeah, I think that's it. That's it for sure. So, coming from the track background, you know, you, you you've had a lot of exposure to different types of athletes, just in that kind of small environment where you know there's clear difference between like endurance athletes and sprint athletes on the track. And then what we see is, um, you know, obviously the endurance guys are more of the explosive riders in the real endurance side of the sport, which would be like road racing, right? So. 
what's kind of like your perspective on the different style of athletes that exist in, in, in the track? Like how, 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 from a physiological perspective and a training perspective, like what separates the sprinters from the endurance riders? And then what separates the endurance riders from the ones who go out and, and, and are able to perform well in the ultra endurance events like the road racing? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating discussion, that one. And I mean, I think the clear differentiation between the sprinters and endurance is, is quite easy to pick. You know, the sprint guys are, you know, bigger, heavier guys are 90 kilos plus. They're just that, you know, 10 to 20 second all out effort. They're done. They need to lie on the side of the track for another half an hour to recover, regenerate and get going again. And then that's really clear cut. You can see massive differences in the just physical shape of them. Um, and, and it's really easy to differentiate that. When you have the endurance guys on the track and then jumping to compare them to the road, like what we see on the track is they're often more explosive from that kind of 30 seconds through to two to three minute mark. And they can hold quite high powers quite well and they're generally quite good at clearing the lactate. So we see a good ability to produce a big effort for a long period of time, you know, three to four minutes, clear the lactate, recover quickly and go again because that's really what you need to be able to do on the track. Um, you know, because you can't free will, there's no opportunity to really drop the so, watts away. So, and, so if you're listening at home and you don't have access to like testing yourself with lactate, like how would you know you're good at that? Uh, you just do four minute effort or a three minute effort, have a short break where you're still pedaling along the road at a reasonable clip and then try it again. <laughs> and, See if you can do and it. And you would find, yeah. And, and I mean, on the road, you can just set a mark. You're like, right, I'm going to go from this lamppost to that lamppost as hard as I can or, you know, as solidly as I can. And then I'm going to turn around, ride back easy and do it again and do it again and do it again and you you'll find that man after two i'm dead after five i'm good you know and you can kind of hack it that way as well um, right. this is a pretty easy way um but then you see the track guys have that ability to to produce high power quickly recover and, and repeat it and when they switch to the you know the road guys or those extended endurance you know they have to be a bit smarter and sit in the bunch a little bit longer and it takes them uh, you know, they're good in the one-day races, but we might see over the Grand Tours they struggle a little bit more in that second and third week just because that back-end endurance might not be as resilient as the road guys. They do it day in, day out. So, um, but when it comes to a sprint or a small breakaway or a bunch kick, then the track guys are generally, generally pretty good. And we see it in guys like, um, you know, I think Benjamin Thomas had a great Tour de France this year where we saw him crack a having a go and, is trying to make uh, make go of it and he's obviously a really good trackie as well so that was, yeah i guess one day races and short bunch sprints are pretty dangerous well the Long guy to a stuff it takes a little bit more work the guy who won the uh the commonwealth games he just i think he just picked up a race over in europe as well what's what's his name sam yeah aaron gate aaron gate yeah aaron gate yeah. he was uh he was pretty impressive there um he's track rider right yeah, he's, he's phenomenal, but he's had a really interesting career as well. So he's come into track at a young age and was successful at the Olympics in uh, London. He picked up a bronze in the team pursuit. Then he, he went to go chase the road as well. So he spent some time um, on the road and leaned out a little bit, dropped a little bit of the muscle mass that he had gained from the track and rode for, um, was it, there was a chain reaction, it was the Irish team, and then he signed with Aqua Blue and did the Vuelta with Aqua Blue and then, um, he's got a little bit unlucky with some road contracts and, and came back to the track and he just dominated those games and he's a little bit older but I think the power is now matched to his long-term endurance ability so he's just so dominant in what he wants to do now but what's so interesting about this for me is you know this these more explosive riders now are getting better and better and better at making it over the climbs right so why is that? Why are these endurance riders on the track who are still typically in the roadside, explosive athletes, why are they getting so much better at making it over the climbs? What's changing? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of the training we're doing. So we did a lot of climbing repeatability in our training. Um, so, so we're getting used to actually holding good torques and good powers on the climb. So when we come into a road race, uh, they're able to sustain higher power for longer now than previously they wouldn't. They would kind what's of just spin at the longer? back instead of it. Like we would do 15, 20-minute efforts on the hill um, at, a, at a really high torque value and try and be you know, above that demand in terms of the TP for power and 
So you, when they're you, coming to the hill race, as long as there's no massive attacks, they can actually sit in the bunch a little bit better now and sustain what's been thrown at them. And they're just able to grind through it a bit more um, than what probably previously they'd done in the past where we might have been more reliant on a higher cadence to get over the climb. So so can you just clear that up for everybody? What would be a higher torque value? Yeah, so like in the team pursuit, the torque might be around girls, it's low 30 newton meters, and for the boys, it's in the 40s. So if we're doing repeated climbs on the hill, we're looking at the girls going over to 45, 50 newton meters. So we're really trying to overshoot that demand. And for the boys, it's up around that 60, 70 um, newton meters, which, which would equate to, you know, your 450, 500 watts for the guys. And for the girls, it'd be, you know, around your 350, 370s. So, uh, watts so, for the girls as well. So, so if I was going on on my ride today, what kind of, how would I achieve that if I wanted to go and train 60 newton meters of torque? Yeah, so you, you got to drop the cadence. So we really want to drop the cadence right down to, you know, 50 RPM. So we really got, we're not using the momentum from the pedal. We have to actually push against and using the resistance to the hill a lot more. Uh, so it's, it's almost like if you're in the gym, you can squat fast and it might seem easy or you can slow it right down and, and go to a box squat and you've really got to drive out of the bottom and, and get that torque strength as well or, or you know, low-end strength in the gym case as well. So so torque being lower cadence. So you're you're doing a lot of lower cadence training with these endurance athletes on the track and and, and so they're using lower cadence, you think, on the climbs now? Yep. Yeah, I think we're seeing the more the, – the, you know, the old tracker used to spin a smaller gear and they would – pedal at 130 RPM on the track, 140 RPM on the track. That's come back a bit to 120, 115 in some cases. And so we're seeing on the climb now these guys are more comfortable pedaling at 80, 85 RPM on the climb, where previously it was at 95, you know, 90, 95, sometimes a little bit more and, and doing it that way. So, so I think that's really information for good information for a lot of our listeners out there because I think it can be kind of confusing, you know, to pick which type of cadence suits you best. And the way I always explain it to people is like, there's no good cadence or bad cadence. It, all cadences are good and they all have their application in the right time and scenario. And, you know, what's interesting is that you're, what you're saying is these riders are, are using these different tools that they've built and applying them in the sport in different scenarios. So a, a more muscular athlete, like we're talking about coming from the track, is more comfortable at 80 RPM because they have a little bit more control of their muscular system. They're using their muscular system a little bit more dominantly than they are their aerobic system, whereas at 100 RPM or something like that, you know, it's all aerobics. And so what's the difference in somebody who's physiologically, Matt, better at 80 RPMs versus 100 RPMs? What makes those two athletes different? It's probably just comes down to an efficiency of movement. So the, the 100 RPM rider, they could have similar VO2s for an example, but the 100 RPM might be more efficient working for that slightly lower power at a lower heart rate by pedaling a good RPM versus a track guy who might be better at a lower heart rate, higher power. So it's kind of like that trade-off of what's your power to work rate relationship and how efficient are you at being able to move the power for the output from the heart rate really essentially is, is what's going on in that sense. Does this have anything to do um, with how much muscle mass you have? Yeah, yeah, muscle mass will play, play a role into it and also your fiber composition as well. So people who might be like, and when we're talking endurance, I mean, people say a type 2 dominant right, I mean, there's no real full endurance rider that's a full-out sprinter. So they might have type 2, 2A, which is like your glycolytic lactate kind of conversion fiber. And, and they will want to ride at a lower cadence to slow the contraction rate down so they don't necessarily load up that muscle as much. And they can generate a little bit more force because the muscle's got a longer time under tension where, say, a slightly less stronger rider in terms of a muscular output might want to ride at a higher RPM and increase the frequency of the contraction and not necessarily hold the muscle under a sustained load for as a longer period as as the others holy smokes that's if that makes sense uh, yeah yeah <laughs> that makes absolute sense that's that's some really amazing information so we're, we're seeing this more and more right like when we look back at the history of the sport right we've, we've seen some riders come through different disciplines and now Come, come under the road and start doing really well. Obviously, Durant Thomas won the Tour de France, started out on the track, Mark Cavendish. Like, there, there's a lot of riders out there that have, you know, come from other disciplines, but we're seeing it also from cyclocross now. Of course, Matteo Vanderpool, um, 
Wout Van Art. There's so many coming from these different, you know, disciplines and just jumping into the road and dominating. Um, so wh- why do you think that is? Obviously, we know and we just discussed on the track that these trackies are doing different things to just get the most out of their body and then applying it to this different discipline. Do you think the same thing's happening in cyclocross? Yeah, I think so. I think if you look at even, say, some basic power profiles, I think they're just coming in physiologically different and they're able to animate the race in a different way and, and use their strengths a lot more. So, you know, the classic cases you might see a road power profile and they might average 240 watts for the ride. But the ride has not a lot of variance in it in terms of, you know, massive power, low power. It's kind of a pretty sustained effort generally. And on the mountain bike, we might see they might only average 230 watts for the ride, but we've seen massive variance in power shifts throughout the ride. So they're doing you know, 10 seconds at 400 watts, then they might be freewheeling, then they're doing a 600, five second, you know, 600 watt, five second burner. And then so we're getting these massive variants in the physiological profile. And then when they're coming to the race, they're just able to attack, recover, attack, recover, attack, recover, and really transform up the race and take some of those more diesel based road guys out of the picture because their band of how much they can go above or beyond a threshold is limited. And these guys are just coming in fresh saying, hey, man, this is what we're used to every day of the week. I'm going to use it to my advantage, and I'm going to attack, attack, and attack. And I think you see that in cross and mountain bikes reasonably similar um, in terms of that power distribution. You know, it's on and off. Um, And then they're just coming in confident, and they're just like, you know what, man, I know you guys can't sit over your threshold more than 10 times in this race for 30 seconds, so I'm just going to do it to you because I can't. Right. And it's funny, we hear a lot of the older guys in the Peloton complaining. You know I mean? like, so do you think that's what it is? Like, you know, it's kind of like that, uh, you know, the person who's been around the group ride for a long time saying like, hey, man, no, we ride like this on this particular ride. And it's, you're coming in too disruptive. We don't really like that. It, and it seems like that's kind of the same thing that's happening in, in pro cycling. Like Vanderpool, Walt Van Aert, like Remco, these guys are launching attacks from like unheard distances that are defining the race. And we think it's because they're looking at the power profiles and saying, hey, like it's to my advantage to just go out and do some crazy stuff because these guys who have, you know, only been training road can only do this one particular play all day. Do you think that's what it is? I think so. And I think when you see, you know, like a few documentaries are coming out and some of the road teams and you can hear some of the directors and there's a little bit of a historical bias to how some of the road boys ride. And it's like, hey, this is how we do it. We wait, we sit in, we draft, we conserve energy, and then we fire that one shot on the climb. And it, it's somewhat predictable in some sense and and somewhat smart as well with saying, hey, that's the best for that athlete. But these young guys are coming in going, man, like we've come from events where the gun goes and it's full gas from the start. And we want to race hard and, and we have to do that and we have to sustain that because we can't win a cross race or a mountain bike race any other way. So why would I come to the road and race differently? This is, this is how I'm going to win. And this is what I'm used to. That's, I mean, that's my, my thoughts on it. are not a hundred percent. But, but we've seen it. We've seen it. You know, like if we look at the 2022 racing season, I think racing changed a lot in 2022. We look at how the Tour de France was won, right. With Vingegaard and, and Pod and, uh, Roglic attacking Pajakar in a super unconventional way, just draining his glycogen all day, breaking him down, breaking him down, and then cracked him on the final climb, right? Like, when's the last time we saw something like that? I can't, personally, I can't remember. Never, never. And it's it's phenomenal. I mean, the basic premise of cycling, right, is, is so cool because it's making someone do something else in your favor. And that's the whole premise of how you want to win a race, right? It's like, I'm going to sit in, I'm going to bluff, or I'm going to smash you, but I'm going to use you to get the best result for me. And it's kind of, that's the way that it's set up in some sense. And and you're seeing riders now just, and teams probably shifting a little bit and saying, hey, we can use these riders in this way to expose and isolate that rider and force them to use up, you know, these riders and change the tactics. Um, and I think we've seen it shift massively in the last, you know, 15 years. We've had kind of the blue postal train came through and rode a certain way and they just rode tempo all day and blew everyone off the wheels. And Enios to an extent did that as well. And then you've got Yumbo coming and going, well, we've got Wout who could probably win the tour one day. He's that bloody good. And uh, we'll use him as a cyclocross sense and just get him going off the front and just yo-yoing everyone else. And then we'll send Rodzlik because he can climb like a demon up the side and let Vindegaard and follow Roger and expose the weaknesses. And, I think with these riders coming from 
different disciplines, you're seeing people being exposed a lot more frequently than what we have in the past. When we when we look at like the core things that are like not core things, the core abilities that these new style of athletes are bringing to the table, above and beyond like just being able to accelerate a lot and and you know being able to ride easier. What what are the core abilities that you think these riders are bringing? These omni riders are bringing to the road game. Yeah, I think that they're just bringing a different skill set. I think that's a massive one, and I think we see see it a lot, especially in some of the descents. You know, like the skills they're bringing from cross and mountain bike and track, where they're used to bumping shoulders, line selection super critical, maintenance of speed through corners is super critical in the mountain bike and across scenario. They're coming onto these descents and they're just able to pick a line, hold the bike a little truer through the corner and, and maintain speed. And so they're bringing these skill sets that are just transforming the race and pushing it in boundaries that it wasn't necessarily done. Um, and we're seeing, I think the Tour de France was a good example of um, Pidcock. There's an amazing video where he just rails the corner on the outside and he's going, you know, five, six K an hour quicker than a road, you know, the road guys. And, and that's starting to transform across, and these guys are just getting freaked out, the road boys, because they're like, man, this is so different. Um, because the mountain bike boys and cross boys are seeing a line three right, three corners ahead of them, and they're just straight lining and hitting it so hard. And, and I think that's changing. And then even the way they're riding in the bunch, you know, they're happy to move around a little bit and take some some knocks, and it's it's kind of pushing people that aren't probably as confident a little bit further to the back and putting them on the back foot from the get-go as well. So. I think there's a lot of that bike skill stuff there. Um, you know, you'd call probably the soft soft skills that we don't talk about a lot, but that they've developed in these other areas that transfer across so well. Well, there's this, there's a whole stress component to that as well, right? Like being comfortable. Like you just you mentioned it, like bumping into people in the group and 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 kind of navigating through the chaos. If you're the type of rider who's all stressed out about that all day, like it's absolutely going to affect your performance because the, the the stress will just drain you and so these younger riders these omni riders are able to kind of come in and just flow through the whole race and then just kind of like the, the interesting thing is the way they attack it's like when they when they light it up like they just light it up like they're just on like a sunday ride with their buddies like just launching it up whatever climb it's it, it's it's like it's so exciting to watch but also so from a performance standpoint, so fascinating to see riders performing at such a high level. And I think a lot of it comes down to that, just that comfort on the bike aspect, like you mentioned, right? They're just so comfortable being able to get in position, being able to just to navigate through all the chaos and just light it up for all of us to, to see. It's just been amazing. So you, you, you mentioned a couple of core things there, right? They're bringing a new skill set. They're better at bike handling. They're more relaxed in the bunch. Is there anything else? Uh, no, I mean, I think that's, that's like, aside from the physiological difference they're bringing from maybe having a greater variance in their training, I think that the second thing they bring across is that skill set. And then, I, I, and like we discussed multiple times and kind of, and there's that mindset as well of, you know, the flag drops, the race starts kind of thing. So, so we're looking at the evolution now of sport and it's clear that, you know, we've, we've made big jumps this year, but you know, the top level of the sport is the example and everything kind of below it is to follow or, you know, this is also where a lot of the innovation happens. So if you're a young rider or you're somebody on the local scene and you're looking to win races and improve your performance, what can we take from what's happening at the top level of sport right now and apply on on the local scene to you know either make a big difference in our training system or like get out there and get some surprising results in a race like what can we take from there and, and, and apply in our local races yeah that's um i mean that's the the biggest discussion happening in the sport at the moment right right from the junior level through your development phases how do you do it and i i, I personally think what we can learn from the top guys in the sport is don't isolate yourself off to one discipline yet i think Utilize other disciplines for training tools. And it can be as simple as, you know, you're a young kid, you're on the road bike, that's your passion, that's where you want to follow, great. Hey, maybe get a mountain bike and have a little bit of fun on that and develop some skills. But also, if you've got a hard interval session, you might have 10 by one minute on, one minute off, you can go do them on a hill on the mountain bike. And you're in the mud and you're having a bit of fun and you're still going to get that physiological shift. 
it's still going to work the body it needs to be worked but you're just doing it in a slightly different modality you have maybe slightly different torque profile which will benefit you but it's enjoyable um, and i think that's that's a real interesting case of just saying hey let's if this is my passion that's cool but what can i think of to the left or the right that can help support that um, in terms of riding a cross race or a mountain bike race i think the, the fascinating one's gravel i think that's got a really really um, interesting place that I think we're going to learn more about over the next few years of what physiologically it's doing to people and how they can transition through. And we've seen a little bit of it with Keegan at the moment, but I think it's going to be a fascinating window to watch as who comes through from there to, to again, impact, say the pro road guys and what we can use in that sense and from young guys on the local scene to develop as well, to come through stronger and more well-rounded bike riders interesting i think for me with the with the gravel scene is it's it's more of just a platform to to compete there's less and less racing in america like criteriums are not necessarily the best breeding ground for world tour level athletes even though like every world tour race pretty much ends in some sort of criterium um you you need the skills to be able to survive it's just that you know it's not it, it just it doesn't allow the 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 world tour level riders to display their all of their abilities because they can be a little bit one-dimensional so that's what's like yeah. to your point interesting about gravel is it's a platform to show everybody your your sweet tricks so it will <laughs> be interesting it will definitely be interesting to see what what comes from it i agree with you 100 percent there but let's 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 go a little bit deeper on the takeaways right so i'm a young rider mm-hmm. let's say or I'm a, I'm a rider on the local level i want to work on like being Matteo Vanderpool or Wout Van Art, like what do I need to do? I need to be good at everything. So where do I start? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the million dollar question. If we knew the answer to that, we would have, you know, thirty Vanderpools and Wout Van Arts and you know, hundred Marion Vosses going around. But I think the way I look at it, and I guess the approach I take with some of the athletes is, well, hang on, let's first initially work out what are your strengths. So where are they? And, and figure out what that looks like and then where are areas opportunities that we can improve some of those areas that aren't quite so strong and it's, it's just being honest so it's like okay hey, i've got a really good engine um, but as soon as i go over my threshold i can only hold it for 20 seconds then i'm toast and, and i can't come back from that okay well <clears throat> what do we need to change with the training for that first and foremost and can we do it you know with another way of cycling can we do it with a mountain bike can we do it with a cross bike um hey i actually not a racer i don't like racing multiple disciplines on a stammer all right how about we jump on zwift and we do it that way like what are the platforms that you can utilize once you know where your strengths and weaknesses are well, i don't really like to call them weaknesses more opportunities what are your opportunities to improve um, is the key and i guess a little secret for me was the big one we got preparing for tokyo was the benefit of zwift it was unbelievable in terms of i could have all the girls racing a 30 minute crit I'd jump on, I'd be in New Zealand, I'd be in Canada, we would race hard. And the power we got out of it was just such a high sustained power because in Zwift, you stop pedaling, you're at the back. So you actually got to work the whole way through. And, and yes, there's drafting, but it's not to the same effect. So that became quite a good threshold session as well. So kind of knowing what you want to work on and then not limiting yourself to that one thought of, oh, I've just got to ride the bike, bike road bike, I've got to go to this hill and do these efforts. Like vary it up, even change your effort up. You know, you might have a four-minute effort to do. Why don't you do 30 seconds hard, 10 seconds easy, 40 seconds hard, 10 seconds easy, until you do your four minutes and and just kind of really changing the parameter of, of what you think is is achievable in that sense. So if you're a great sprinter, you know, work on that, work on those longer threshold efforts. You're already good at sprinting. Is this what you're saying? Work on those longer well, efforts. I, Try to become more dynamic. I think becoming more dynamic, like you've got to always touch the – touch the base or what you're good at, you've always got to make sure you keep working on. But if you can support it with a stronger platform in the other areas, like you know you can sprint really well from 100 meters out, but you can actually now generate four or 500 watts a kilometer out to put yourself in the position to have a good sprint. Then, well, then well, what, would be, what would be a good split for somebody, right? Like somebody who's, let's say we've got a good sprinter, they've got eight hours a week, like most of our clients have to dedicate to their 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 hobby. What what would a what would a good split be to let's say focus on the things you're good at and um, focus on the the opportunities as you said? 
you have the opportunity. <laughs> I mean, if you got eight hours, you might break that into, say, four two-hour rides a week. That's probably the easiest way of doing it. You could say, right, two, hour, two of those sessions might be on whatever phase you're in building. So it might be strength phase, endurance phase. And then the other two sessions, you could do one, which could be multiple sprint phase to help maintain and then work on that top-end sprint view. And then the one session could be, right, this is going to be a, an opportunity session where we're going to start to delve into areas I'm not quite good at and stress and put some stress and strain into those systems to develop them. So you could say, hey, 25% might be your strength, 25% might be your work on, and the other 50 is is your base foundation work that you're, you're on based in whatever phase you are. And then as the season progresses, that could change a little bit as well. Really um, interesting. I guess it's all, yeah, it's, it's all, I guess, contextual to where you are in the season. Um, wow. But the one thing we like to do is I personally don't subscribe to um, your standard periodization where you do your endurance and your strength and your spat. No, I like to work across the spectrum all season round, and we just vary how frequent that occurs in, in your phase. But you've got to work on the whole power duration all year round, in my personal belief and, and from what I've seen. That's that, that – well, that – that, that's fascinating because I did a podcast with TJ Van Garderen and obviously we know, you, you know, we TJ had a phenomenal career as a writer. And I asked him on the podcast, I said, if you could look back on your career and change anything in, in terms of your development, what would you change? And he said, man, I would have spent way more time in the gym. I would have trained shorter and harder all year round. And so he's definitely, you know, just validating what, what, what you're saying right there. And that, there, there is no kind of need for easy base miles anymore. It's always about working and and developing your craft. Of course, there's there's always a, a space for you know base miles and things like that. But more more emphasis on becoming this dynamic athlete all year round. So what does like what does that look like if you're structuring out your year? Because a lot of people are familiar with standard periodization. What does that look like if we're now we're we're talking about going fast all year? What does that mean? Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, so, I mean, it might be if we use, say, winter, for example, for North America, and, and we know we're going into that, It's that's typically your off-seasons. You might have a slight rest, and then you come into it, and you'll still do those endurance miles and those those Ks that are based, but we might have one or two sessions a week where it's a polarized approach, and so you might do your, your Ks, and then two sessions a week or one session a week is hard, short, sharp intensities, and it could be anywhere from five seconds seated efforts to 10 second sprints to minute efforts and it's using multiple uh short sharp efforts and we might put a few more in than what we normally would in terms of the volume but you might go from 10 reps it might be 20 spread out across the session to still develop the aerobic system but also make sure we're we're mainly on that top end so it's never taking that that hard intensity effort out of the the build wherever you are in the season Um, and then we could cut the hours down a little bit to allow for that recovery from from the session. So it might be the weekends. It might be a three-hour ride, a four-hour ride, and now your base endurance case. Uh, you know, getting the the mitochondrial shifts, like getting that efficiency of movement. Then it might be Monday off. Tuesday could be a short two-hour ride where we bump the wattage up, and we're working at the top end of that aerobic zone. And then Wednesday we could do a hard interval session. So you've kind of double-edged a higher intensity aerobic session with the high intensity interval session and then that combined will place a greater overall strain on the aerobic system as well and then thursday might be active recovery friday we get ready for the weekend and it, it could be something like that for example and and so from a feeling perspective right wh- what could i expect to feel different like what's the difference in how i'm going to feel if i do this traditional approach traditional periodization versus this dynamic approach that you're you're talking about yeah, I think you might just, if you do the traditional sense, you might feel that training just becomes, you feel like it takes longer to feel strong and fit and ready to go. And you'll just feel the body go through that transition of, oh, I can start to train again, or I can string days back together. And it just seems to be a drawn out process where if you shorten it and maybe intensify it or change it and make it a little bit more dynamic, then you might find that you feel you get into shape a lot quicker and your body is able to tolerate um more shifts and changes easier and, and faster than the traditional sense. So in, in some regards, like you're going to have to go through the hard stuff. You're going to have to feel like crap at some point. So you might as well just get it out of the way sooner rather than later. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? 
Yeah, and it's also not losing that hard work that you've worked on in the season, you know, because it's like you've worked really hard, you've done all these sessions, you've done all these races, you've fine-tuned the body, and then you go to an off-season, you don't do anything, and then you spend the next six weeks just riding easy. And then you've got to almost start back at square one again to reintegrate all that hard intensity stuff. So it's like, why not just do that from the get-go? And it doesn't have to be as frequent or as hard as what it was in season, but it's still there. So when you do go to kick onto it, you're actually already at a better place to, to move on and hopefully push the performance as well. Well, I think a lot of a lot of athletes were doing that because they wanted to rest, right? How yep. how does this this more dynamic approach affect fatigue on an annual basis? Yeah, it takes a while. To be fair, you've got to have a reasonably good training history behind you, or you've just got to be smart with how you program it through the year. So there's still that added advantage of you could say, if you're just going back into base miles or traditional, you might only have a two week break. And knowing you've got a little bit of time to build up. But if you're going for a more intense, you could say, hey, look, we can actually afford to have a three-week break because we know how quick we can actually turn you around. And what we've seen from a fatigue point of view is, yeah, we are seeing probably greater TSS or greater stress index scores on the athlete day to day. But it's about then understanding and chatting to that athlete, well, hang on, what are their limitations in terms of stress that they can handle? And do we just need to make sure we factor in a little bit more rest and then cut back some of the training time? Um, and I know it sounds quite counterintuitive to do less, but if you do less with greater quality, then from what I've seen in my experience, we come out with a greater result um, at the end of the day. So we're getting a higher quality of training. We get a better quality of rest. So we're getting better adaptation. And then we're, that's going to equate to a greater performance. Um, rather than maybe a traditional sense where you might just get a slow burn, dull ache feeling in your legs every day for a long period of time. And then, you got to go to some races and get dropped. You've got to go and do some efforts and hurt and, and ramp it up that way as well. I, but I guess the caveat is it's not one for everyone. It's kind of who you are as an athlete as well and, and what you prefer and, and how you've been trained in the past as well. Well, well, it's, what we're seeing at the top level of sport is is just what you've described, right? Is you know the, the best guys are not coming into the races like needing to race seven or eight races to be on the podium or be in there they might not be in their top form on the first race but they're they're in the races and and i think that's probably due to the way uh, the top athletes are training and so if we can take that from the highest level of sport and and bring it to uh, people of all ability levels and and walks of life and and, and different uh, goals then we'll have faster faster athletes uh, all, all all around and I also think that the way athletes are, are are training, the types of intervals that they're doing, these like race simulation type of intervals almost are are evolving as well. And I think if we if we kind of take these concepts and teach them to regular people, like not professional riders, that their ability to apply these intervals that they do to the sport is is much easier. Do you have any experience in, in in doing things like that? More dynamic style training that that simulate races that, you know, kind of athletes can take and apply directly to what they do in their sport? In terms of different different types of sports? So like going from cycling and applying it to running or vice versa. And- no, no, let's say like, you know, you, you've got a you you've got a particular race you're preparing for, right? Like I, I did a podcast, I think, with Nielsen Palace. Uh, before he was fourth place at Worlds last year in 2021. And he's like, man, I just, I knew there was going to be this big hill. And so I was just doing these intervals specifically for this hill, right? So like a specific interval for a race, right? And so do, do you think like there's benefit in amateur cyclists doing these types of specific intervals for an event that will apply directly to the event that they want to do? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the key to training is specificity, right? You've got to train what you're wanting to race and what you're wanting to do. And um, I don't think it the, – the caveat there is making sure as an amateur athlete that you don't just limit yourself to those types of intervals only and you say, right, I'm only going to do this hill rep and I'm only going to do this because this is the one hill that's going to count in the race because you've got to wait another year for that race and you might have put your whole season on it and you're not like uh, getting paid to do it. You're paying to do it. So it's like – making sure, yes, you do some specific efforts for that and then utilizing other intervals as well to help support that, but also make sure we don't 
miss out on that other end of the power curve or the power spectrums, which are what we're wanting to develop um, as well. So I guess some examples we've had of that is there might be, um, we've had some grand fondos where we know it finishes on a strong hill. And so we've got the, the person to go out and do some multiple reps of climbing for 10 to 15 minutes, varying pace, you know, seated standing efforts to get used to what the demand might be. But then equally, we've gone back and in some of the earlier sessions done really hard intervals in the middle of a ride. So they might do an hour and then they've got to do some threshold efforts and some sprints to simulate, stress the body there. So they get to a fatigue state and then they do the climb to kind of replicate what the race might be. And then if that race doesn't work out for them, they've still worked on this other area that we can transform to another event quite comfortably and, and they can still feel that they can push and be competitive in that as well. It sounds like we keep coming back over and over and over again to the same thing, right? Like if you want to develop as a rider, you really need to work on being multidimensional. We yeah. talked about in the beginning of the podcast, we talked about what these track guys were, were doing, how they overcame this kind of getting dropped on climbs by transitioning from higher cadence to their advantage, that, that muscular system dominance. And that's why they're able to make it over climbs now. And then we talked about how um, all of these, these, riders from different sports are able to apply these unique power profiles that they build in their unique disciplines and then come into the road game and apply that and disrupt this traditional style of road cycling. And then, then we talked a little bit about, you know, how all of this can apply to regular everyday people's cycling and, and, and how maybe working on a much wider variety of, uh, kind of skills and abilities will not only like make you a better rider, but also make your training more fun because you're constantly working on different things. And so I think there was a lot of information, a really insightful podcast, Matt, thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing your amazing uh, knowledge with, with all of us. Yeah, no, thanks Zach. I really enjoyed it. And it's always great speaking about this stuff and you know, it always challenges me to think differently as well. So great opportunity. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Team EF Coaching Performance Podcast. Don't forget, if you're interested in working with Coach Matt Schaukras and improving your cycling skill set and developing some new abilities, you absolutely can. Go ahead and head to teamefcoaching.com and schedule a consultation with us today. We look forward to chatting with you. If you're not already subscribed to the Team EF Coaching Performance Podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And don't forget, Ask us any questions you want answers to on social media and we'll try to get to them. That's it for now. Take care, everybody.